This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. From a design standpoint, some things are just cooler than other things. And these things don't need to be justified to anyone because people either understand it or they don't. But that doesn't mean there isn't an interesting and amazing story behind these objects that might contribute to their coolness in a meaningful way. Today, Andrew and I each selected two items, and we're going to share these with you along with their incredible stories. Welcome to episode 144, Objects of Design. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to share with you some things we feel that are meaningful to us and why maybe it should be meaningful to you rather than making this a list of things we like by extension, things we think you should like. We're going to dig a bit deeper and talk about the story behind each item we discuss today. In a sense, it's that story that should make today's podcast interesting. Just the fact that we think it's interesting probably isn't good enough. So we're going to step up our game. We did hella research <laughs> on these things. You're selling this one hard. I mean, the hype is now I'm already worried mine are going to be a letdown here. No. <laughs> Last time we did this, we both really enjoyed yeah. it. And I talked to a handful of people. They're like, you know, that first Objects of Design, which I think was, I'm going to guess, episode 49, I think is what it was. Somewhere around in there, yeah. I thought it was awesome. And it didn't do badly. It did like they all do. It did great. It did amazing, actually. But they all do amazing. It didn't do more amazing. And I was disappointed because I put so much effort into the research. And I went to <laughs> libraries. I'm like doing weird download PDF documents. I'm buying research. Yeah, I, so much. Yeah. And then, yeah, nothing. I was like, man, maybe I just set my expectations too high. But. Clearly, I didn't learn my lesson Yeah, because we're going to do another one. I know. And it's the same thing. Yeah. Lots and lots of research. And hopefully, hopefully someone enjoys it and it doesn't just mildly perform the same as all the others. Although it's not really about that. It's more just hopefully somebody enjoys it. Yeah. I mean, I know people enjoy it. It makes me think a little bit like the 99% invisible because these are just design stories. Yeah. Like it's not necessarily. One of my things isn't even architecture. It's just a cool thing. Oh. And it's got a story behind it. Well, one of my not architecture either. There you go. Variety, people. That's what we're bringing to the conversation today. So the rules are simple. Andrew and I were each tasked with identifying a handful of items that we think are worthy of being labeled objects of design. And we're going to present them in an alternating fashion. And we're going to be keeping score. I <laughs> went back and looked what I said last time. <laughs> what I said is, we're going to be keeping score because at the end, I want my list to be better. Than Andrew's list of garbage. Mm. <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah, I don't really mean it. It just makes me laugh to say it that way. So. <sighs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, you know one of the ones that I'm doing. Actually, I told you three. No, you told me two. I know two. Well, no, I told you three. You might not remember them. There were two buildings and one was a piece of furniture. That was my three. Well, you hadn't sat on that piece of furniture yet. Yeah, and I'm not. That piece of furniture is out. Okay. And then of the two buildings... 
you knew what both of them were, but I'm only doing one of them now. Oh, okay. And I'm going to save one of them for the fall objects of design. For later? Okay. Another version? Sure. And then I brought up this an actual object, which would have been my third, but in today's episode, it'll be the second thing we go through. So let's do buildings first, and then non-buildings second. Okay, well, right? I don't have a building, so it'll be interesting. Oh, all right. <laughs> I couldn't find right. one. I tried. Okay, all right. The buildings that I wanted to do, I couldn't find any interesting stories about. You know, I went down some shallow rabbit holes or maybe a field of holes that were all very shallow. I could never come up with a really good story for the couple of the buildings that I was interested in doing. So I am buildingless. Okay, all right. Well, the building that I'm going to talk about was one of my favorite buildings. Mm -hmm. I embarrassed myself trying to copy it in some regards on one of my projects in college. <laughs> There were principles that were behind this building that I tried to adopt into other projects I did. I just thought this was an amazing building. So here's how I'm going to introduce it. I'm going to start my list today with that building. And the building I'm starting with, one that architects, fans of architecture, and certainly Swiss people and maybe French people should all be familiar with. And it is the Villa Savoy a modernist villa designed by charles Edouard Genere Gris, otherwise or better known as Le Cabousier. Mm -hmm. And his cousin, Pierre Genere, which I didn't really know what the cousin's role was in any of this. Mm -hmm. And now that I've done tons and tons and tons of research, I still don't really know. <laughs> Other than... He took some photos during construction. I'm not trying to make a lot of this, by the way. Yeah. He took some photos that people said, these aren't great photos. <laughs> so, but those photos become important later. I mm -hmm. mean, the reason, the reason why I know about the photos during construction is because it actually played a role in what happened to Villa Savoie. Yeah. Well, his cousin did a few things with him back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. One of the chairs I was going to look at in the previous episode was the Chandigar chair that his cousin mm -hmm. Pierre actually designed. Oh, well, there you go. So Villa Savoie is located, you know what, here's something else, people. It just so happens that the two things I'm talking to today are not USA stuff. And I'm going to butcher some names and stuff. Yes. I'm going to do my best and just take it with a grain of salt that know that, yes, I know that I'm not saying it right, but I'm trying and just give me a little bit of courtesy, all right? Just let's get that out of the way. That's a ditto for me, too. There's a lot of European yes. stuff that's going to be coming out of my mouth. It's bad. All right. So Villa Savoie is located in the town of Poissy. That's the first one out of the gate that I'm not sure I got. P-O-I-S-S-E-Y. And it was built out of reinforced concrete between the years of 1928 and 1931. And the villa was designed for Pierre and Eugenia, I think, Savoie as a country home for them. But the reality is, is they actually barely ever lived in this house, which We'll get to that in a minute. Mm. So I actually visited this building in the fall of 1990 after being quite familiar with the work as a result of architectural history classes and all that stuff I said earlier in the show about how much the work that he did at that time influenced me. Now, keep in mind, I was in school in late 80s, early 90s, and deconstructivism was a big thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this was the popular flavor of the day when I was in college. But for some reason, I just thought, I looked at it, I was like, this stuff is awesome. And everyone else is doing weird Bernard Schumi deconstructivist projects. Mm -hmm. And I'm over there doing five principles of architecture. And 
<laughs> it was kind of, it looked kind of simple. What I was doing in some regards looked a little simple, but truth is it's how I design now. There's so much rigor in what I do. I go, easy is hard to do. And I think people forget that sometimes. Maybe I'm just making excuses. I don't know. Anyway, when I went there, didn't know what to expect. And it was not awesome. <laughs> I mean, the, the building itself was not in great shape. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had idealized it in my mind in a way that was not my experience. Mm -hmm. All the photos you see, I mean, there's tons of fruit trees on this property. It was a much bigger property when he originally did it than now. And a lot of fruit trees, a lot of orchards, that sort of thing. And all the photographs you see of it, you don't see any other buildings. It's typical architectural photography. Everything's immaculate. Everything's perfect. Everything's green. And you get there and there's like traffic and street signs all over the place. There's a giant school right next door that they managed to expertly crop out at the last second before it shows up. Funny thing is, is that school plays a role, and that school is called like the Le Cabousier City School. They've named it after Le Cabousier since it's right next to Villa Savoie. Mm. So it's actually, it's a great project. It is an important project, but it just wasn't what I thought it was in my mind when I finally got there. But the thing that makes this project interesting is we got to go back to 1927, before this was even an idea of a project. This is what makes the story interesting. So in 1927, the League of Nations rejected the modern building that Le Corbusier and his cousin Pierre Genet proposed for their headquarters. And to say that Corbusier was disappointed might have been an understatement because it was at this moment that was the jumping off point that led to Le Corbusier forming the International Congresses of Modern Architecture, which happened in 1928. Another Swiss, because Corbusier was Swiss. He wasn't French. Another Swiss from Zurich, a guy named Siegfried Gideon. Have you ever heard that guy's name before? Mm, no, it's not ringing a bell. You know. I had never heard this guy's name before. And he's pretty important to this story. Like I, I was amazed that I'd never heard about this before. So Siegfried Gideon, who was trained as an engineer and attended the Bauhaus school where he met Walter Gropius and formed his initial interest and opinions on modern architecture, joined Corbusier as the secretary for the International Congress. And the two of them, and I'm sure there were other people, the two of them basically wrote a, a doctrine that was called Working Program. And he formulated along with these, the, the text of the Declaration, which would eventually be distilled into the five principles of architecture that he talks about in Towards a New Architecture, which is an architecture book that every architecture student has to read at some point. At least they should. Yeah. So Towards a New Architecture came out of this declaration that Corbusier and Gideon wrote after they formed the International Congress after him getting rejected from this, getting to do this project. Mm -hmm. Ville Savoie doesn't even exist yet. So now it's 1928. And Le Corbusier had taken on the commission from Pierre and Eugenia to do Ville Savoie. And I'd already mentioned it was kind of their summer house, and so it wasn't their primary residence, but they developed a brief that called for the programming of what it was all going to be and what was included in rooms and all that kind of good stuff. Apparently, Corbusier was given completely free reign aesthetically, and so he used this project to articulate the ideas that showed up in that doctrine working program that they'd created that eventually became Towards a New Architecture. 
at that time is in French and it's called Vier's Un Architecture. But the principles, which every architecture student knows, at least they should know, is pilotes, pillars, the flat roof, roof garden, open floor plan, long windows, and open facades. All of these principles are clearly on display at Villa Savoie. It is, he used it as the laboratory to say, like, here's the most distilled version of these principles that I think all architecture should take into consideration, embodied in one project. I'll post some pictures on the side of the project if you're not familiar with it, and you'll see, yeah, that's exactly what it was. So here we are. Construction starts. Now it's 1929. Construction starts, and it's virtually completed within a year, but the house was inhabitable for like another year or so because there's leaks and, you know, typical doing new stuff that like flat roofs and like, you know how this goes. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Gideon has been writing and publishing articles about Villa Savoie during the construction progress about how an exemplary building it was and how it reflected this new architecture. Now, keep in mind, he was one of the people, like, of course he's going to say this. It reflected the principles that he and Corbusier put together in the International Congress Doctrine. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he's like, whoop, whoop, yes, this is awesome. This is the best house ever. So, all of these principles and the architecture and the articles that Gideon's writing brought a lot of attention to Villa Savoie, but it was still under construction when these initial articles were being published. And there's a handful of historical documents that you can find on the internet that show a dialogue between Gideon and this publisher by the name of Christian Zervos. And this is that part I was chuckling about. I don't know if we were talking about at the beginning of the show, if we recorded it or not, but about the photos that they were sending in to support mm. these articles. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, these are not the best photos. And there's this like, they're not done. Like they're not staged. There's no furniture. But I'm telling you, a couple of photos you find they are so diagrammatic that they're actually really cool. They look like drawings, but it's actually the finished product. Because like the ribbon window's in, but there's no window, uh, right? Yeah. So it's just an opening. And you're like, that looks awesome. Mm. So there's all these neat things that are kind of going on when you see in these early photographs. But if we move on a little bit and you're like, okay, well, why haven't they been living in the house? Well, they finally did move in, but they weren't in it for very long because... World War II comes to town. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we can't really hang out here anymore. Yeah. And the house was commandeered by the Germans. And there's some information, I couldn't find more than one source, other than the Germans commandeered it, but that they used it to store hay. That's how they used Villa Savoie. And then go downstream a little bit, not too long after that. It was passed along to the Americans who used it for purposes other than storing hay. When it finally returned to the possession of the Savoies, they were no longer in a position to live there as they had done before the war, and the house was abandoned. I'm sure a lot of people's financial circumstances changed immediately after yeah, the war. During it, because of it. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Makes sense. So the city expropriated the property and they decided they were going to build a school. They were going to build school buildings on this property. Meanwhile, Corbusier doesn't know about any of this. I mean, he knows about the war. <laughs> That's not the part I'm talking about. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, no, he knows about that. But he doesn't know that, okay, the Savoies are not taking it back and that it was expropriated by the city and they had plans to like, get rid of it and build school, you know, that kind of stuff. So he gets notified by the Savoie, by the family, I guess, 
1959. I mean, it's been like, it's been a while since. 10 years at least, yeah. Yeah, since the war ended. And this is what's happening now. Because, I mean, you got to keep in mind, the house set empty for a while mm-hmm. before they finally decide to take action on it. So it's not like war ended, we're taking it. It's like war ended, it sat empty, went derelict, you know, no one's taking care of it, things are falling apart. Yeah. So in 1959, he gets notified about it and he immediately takes action to save this project. Now keep in mind, Corbusier is at the very end of his career. I looked it up and I think the last building he did was like in 1965. And it's 1959 right now. Mm -hmm. And he only had, oh, I don't know, like 58, 57, high 50 projects. It's the number of projects that he had built in his entire career. Mm -hmm. So despite the enormity he plays in our brains, he doesn't have hundreds and hundreds of buildings. He's got like less than 60. Yeah. And he's at the end of his career. So he's like, I got to do something about this. So he goes and talks to the city and essentially learns that the only steps that can be taken to save the villa is to buy it outright, which he didn't get that kind of money. And so he reached back out to Gideon, his longtime buddy, who's now in New York. He's teaching at Harvard. I mean, he's a pretty big deal in his own right. Reaches out to Gideon and says, hey, this is not a vanity exercise. I've already reached out to the Circle of Architectural Studies of Paris. He reached out to this guy named Andre Malraux, who was the Minister of Cultural Affairs for France. He reached out to UNESCO, which, in an interesting turn, it is a UNESCO site. Corbu has 17 UNESCO properties. Mm. It's a pretty high percentage of your buildings <laughs> are World Heritage Sites. Yeah. He reached out. None of them even gave any, like the slightest indication or intention of saying that they're going to assign any historic value to the property, which would end up stopping the city of Bousset from- From just demoing it. Getting rid of it and building a school, right? Yeah. So he thinks, I need to rely on Gideon, my new buddy, in the new world, and all that American money, right? America's riding high. It's after World War II. It's after like, War II, yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kings of the planet at this point. And so he reaches out to him and says, hey, can you help with this? You're well connected. So he starts this process. Gideon starts the process of asking around. And, and <laughs> these letters are available. You can find them online. He basically says, okay, this is what we need. What we need from you is to know exactly how much the city paid for the villa, essentially, and then what they need to repair it. And he goes, from the American point of view, it's impossible to ask for money without knowing the exact sum and the use to which it'll be put, which pretty reasonable, pretty reasonable. (laughs) So based on the estimates of agronomists, because the state was pretty big and had a lot of free trees, along with Corbusier, they determined that they would need a hundred million francs. I left out some. They didn't want just how much would it cost to buy it. It was how much to buy it, how much to repair it, and to what use will it be used once all that's done. Mm, okay. Right? Like, we're not fixing up a new house for you to just to move in and go, check out my sweet new digs, right? Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. I went online to try to figure out how much would a hundred million French francs in 1959 mean today. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out, honestly. I'm, I'm just not that smart, apparently, because francs don't exist anymore. Yeah. You have to do a, an inflationary index and then do another one when it switches over to the euro. And I was like, eh. it's a lot, okay, people? It's just a lot. It's a lot of money. <laughs> well, a hundred million of anything back then, yeah, yeah. 
You know, the house actually was budgeted to cost 500,000 francs at the point of construction. It ended up coming in almost at a million francs when it was done. That's 1931 dollars. Yeah, wow. So it was a lot of money to build. So Seems like a lot of money, yeah. Yeah. So here we are 30 years later, and it's 100 million at this point. Now, it was funny because one of the estimates for, was for 25 million francs, and one was for 105 million and so Corbusier said, well, let's split the difference and go with 100. <laughs> That's not yeah. the middle. That's not the difference. <laughs> let's split it disproportionately. Yeah. So here's the part that's crazy. And I could keep going. I mean, this goes on for so long. There's like so many amazing things. But here's what's crazy. So in order to do this, what Corbusier does, because Gideon comes back and says, you know, I don't have like a line of people knocking on my door to give us all this money to save a villa outside of Paris. Mm -hmm. So what Corbusier did is he went and set up the Le Corbusier Foundation, where the foundation would be his sole heir. And he states, he got a notary, and they put this all together, and you can go find it and read it. He set up this foundation, and he states that there's an asset of very significant value, which is thousands of drawings, over 200 paintings, the whole of architectural and urban planning designs from 1922 and on, you know, he was still alive. And then the royalties on all the books that he was getting at that time, which he said was over 50. And he goes, all that money's in front of us. It's never in my pocket because my pockets never had it. So he basically saying, I'm going to put this into this trust and this trust is going to fund all of this. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is meanwhile, Gideon, all the people that Gideon had been reaching out to, started writing letters back to that guy who was the cultural affairs minister for France, mm -hmm. writing him letters about the role that this villa has within the grand scheme of architecture, like hundreds and hundreds of letters. So that, in concert with what Corbusier did, they were able to secure and save the, the villa from destruction. And in a shocking turn, UNESCO you know, made it a World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. Corbusier was still alive when that happened. Mm, wow, yeah. I bet you can count on one hand the number of times a site has been made. That's actually happened, yeah. Yeah, World Heritage Site, the person that did it is still alive. Yeah. So all of that's this crazy business on top of the fact that it's actually a pretty remarkable house. The architecture is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I also found, and I'll throw this on there so that we can move on because this show will be forever long if we just tell all these super in-depth stories. Do you know there was a gardener's? house yeah i've heard that i've heard that there was a little i never saw it i don't remember seeing it when i was there but i found drawings of it mm. and it's like a little tiny villa savoie it's, it's like take villa savoie and shrink it down to one sixteenth the size and that's it interesting yeah isn't that crazy i didn't know that either yeah. maybe i should embarrassed that i didn't know that but i didn't know do that. you know that it still stands i don't know that it still stands no i don't maybe know maybe it doesn't maybe it got lost in the hubbub well, there were budget cuts, and I'm thinking maybe it never got built because of budget reasons. Because uh. I've never seen a picture of it, but I found the drawings of it. Now, for the people that want to go look at all the stuff I'm talking about, I'm not sure how much I can show, because when I went, and I haven't been back since 1990, and all my stuff was slide. I mean, how does that date me? Yeah. <laughs> you take a slide photograph? Yes. And I'm like, man, if I had had, even if with the phones that people have now, I would have thousands of photos of this project yeah but i don't i have slides and you know what i love you guys but i'm not going to get in my slides converted into digital not for this yeah so i have to go find a bunch of common rights kind of images that i can use legal internet photos yeah 
Yes. So this post will be full of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So there's my object of design number one for me. Mm, okay. Interesting. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are visiting today with Kendra Martz, who has been with Construction Specialties for 10 years and holds the role of Senior Product and Sustainability Manager. Her work at CS has evolved from managing product sustainability certifications to embedding sustainable design principles into the product development process and overseeing the product pipeline. She's passionate about using design industry collaboration to provide healthy, sustainable, and resilient solutions for the built environment. Hi, Kendra. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Bob, Andrew, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We like to ask people where they're joining us from. Are you in Pennsylvania like everybody else normally? I am in Pennsylvania. I live outside of Philadelphia currently, and I'm very excited because I'm a big winter person, and I saw there is a chance of flurries this morning. So, Oh, I man. Wow. <laughs> There's a chance of 75 degrees here today, so no snow for us. Okay, so let's get into this a bit. We're going to talk a little bit about sustainable practices and resilient solutions. So I want to start off by saying a lot is changing in our industry where sustainability is concerned. And over the course of your career, what efforts have you seen gain the most traction? Right now, there's a ton of momentum around climate health due to climate change. We're at a race towards reduced carbon emissions and sequestering more carbon than that's being emitted. So there's lots of industry initiatives like AIA 2030 Challenge, net zero commitments, and there's a big uptick of manufacturers creating EPDs. So this driver to reducing carbon is something that CS is very much aligned with, and it's what led us to look at increasing our recycled content of our products because it can ultimately help us reduce the embodied carbon of our materials. So this fall at Healthcare Design, we actually launched the first PVC-free with post-consumer recycled content wall protection. And it's available on select wood grains and brushed metals for our wall covering. And this new product will be available starting this spring. That's a lot. That sounds like a good yeah. product. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's the favorite one that I've worked on to date. Wow, that's awesome. Along those same lines, if somebody wanted to more actively embed sustainability practices into their design, where would you recommend that they start? Really just starting by asking questions. We're all in a different place in this sustainability journey. It's constantly evolving. And people that are passionate about it really just want to help and share the information that they have available. So I really encourage architects, designers, and other manufacturers to engage with one another to partner and challenge us. As an industry, we're really trying to align around sustainability to make it easier to understand and get involved. So you can either connect with your local USGBC chapter, connect with your manufacturer partners, or connect with Mindful Materials, which is a newer nonprofit that is a global cross-sector collaboration hub who convene to share learnings and drive better practices around material selection. Sustainable efforts have been taking place for decades, but there's still a need to educate others about that process. I know this is something that CS feels pretty strongly about. Yeah, so we're up against really big challenges that take time to solve as an industry, and we're not really getting there fast enough. We have a lot of the right programs, the products, and the technology to really do this work. We're just missing out on the scale and the pace that we need in order to make and address these challenges. And so Mindful Materials is an organization that at Construction Specialties we partner with. We are one of the forum partners with this organization, and we're really trying to get others involved 
in this journey together to have an aligned ask and share learnings with one another. And so Mindful Materials came up with something called Common Materials Framework. It's ultimately going to be this North Star for holistic material sustainability. And it really looks at organizing all of this information into five product selection criteria or five buckets. And that is really helping the industry work together and get there faster. Wow, that is awesome. Special thanks to Construction Specialties. They're so focused on the importance of helping architects achieve their creative vision that they've created a CEU Academy with multiple courses covering all aspects of design. These courses are each worth one AIA learning unit or one IDCEC CEU HSW credit. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. Hey, Kendra, thank you for joining us today from just outside the city of brotherly love. Thank you both for having me yeah, here today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, it was our pleasure. So mine is at least somewhat architectural, this first one. It deals with an architect, oddly enough, about the same time period as yours, but this one is a piece of furniture designed by an architect, maybe. I'll, I'll put now it's maybe. So it's the Barcelona chair by Mies van der Rohe that was you know, originally designed in 1929 for the Barcelona Pavilion at the Expo in, in Spain for the German Pavilion. But come to find out here in, I don't know, I guess in recent times, that there was a woman by the name of Lily Reich who was a member of the Bauhaus, actually was the only female to ever receive the master status at the Bauhaus. Interesting. Yes. Who was... Probably, as from what my research is saying, it's probably like a really close, maybe girlfriend kind of person to Mies mm. van der Rohe. From what I could read, they were a pair for a lot of the time that he was at the Bauhaus up until he left to come to the United States in 1938, that they were inseparable companions is what was I read most times. And so I don't know what that really means, but they did a lot of work together. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And she was actually an artist who dealt with textiles, furniture, and interiors and exhibition spaces, actually. She did a lot of the exhibitions for the Bauhaus and for the German work burn. And so it turns out that she really helped him with the chair design. Come to find out, as I'm doing my research, she helped him with all of his chair designs. The only furniture ever attributed to Mies was the time period between 1928 and 1937. When he and Lily Reich were partners and hanging out a lot during the Bauhaus era. Interesting. After that, he never did another piece of furniture, never, <laughs> never anything else. And so you're like, <laughs> mm, this is interesting. In doing my research, and I mean, I love the chair. Corbu has a, also has a chair that I really like, but you were doing Corbu, so I didn't go down that path. But I think it's a really interesting design. I'm in a really elegant chair. I've always kind of loved those time period pieces of furniture. And turns out that he may not be the person that actually designed the chair. <laughs> it might have been one of those Charles and Ray Eames situations, but... Wow. Wow, isn't that something? So, that's the history. interesting part about the chair is that maybe it wasn't designed by Mies, exactly. And if we just talk about the chair itself, it was designed as part of the German Pavilion, but the idea was that they were going to have the king and queen of Spain sit in the pavilion during the exposition. And so these chairs were designed for the king and queen to sit in. 
so I guess in a roundabout way, the idea of the cross-beamed S's is actually based on the idea that came from a previous type of chair used in the Roman Empire that was a portable chair that they would take and higher nobility in the Roman heirs would sit on this chair. And really, it was like a kind of a mobile folding chair, and it wasn't really, the legs didn't really fold up. It kind of folded in half a little bit. You think like the seat pops up, and then it just compresses together a little bit. But this was a chair that we used to, when they traveled around. And in reality, when you look further into that, that type of chair and the S form goes back even further into Egyptian times, where you can trace that kind of chair being sat on by royal people or people of significant value. So I don't know if you have something to add to that. It was the Roman magistrate's chair, but the yeah. the back was different. The The Egyptian version was the, I'll say this wrong, it's the Carulus, C-U-R-U-L-I-S. Cerul, yeah. Yeah, Cerulus. And it was kind of rounded, like when you sat in and it kind of hugged the mm-hmm. side of your hips a little bit, and there was no back on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no back. But that shape, which was seen, like when you, let's say you're someone's sitting in it and you're looking at them from the front, that X was seen in the front because the leg on the right would come up, form the bottom of the seat, and then curve up on the left, right? So it's kind of like an X. He rotated that 90 degrees. Yes. So I thought that was part of what makes that chair so interesting. Part of the history, kind of the evolution is the little twist that they turn, which was literally a twist. Yes. A twist. <laughs> yeah. And another idea that I, that I came across was that, and again, who knows how true this is, but the idea was the reason that it's there's the frame and then the straps and the cushions are flat and sit above the frame actually on the straps when it's not nobody's sitting in it is to give this sort of idea that it's a it's a lofty little thing. Mm. It's more noble because it's sort of lifted off the chair frame a little bit. So somehow that gives it a little bit more sense of air of nobility about it, which I thought was kind of funny. Wow. That is funny. The other thing about the chair that's really interesting that I didn't know is that originally that S frame was bolted together. I could not find a picture anywhere of a bolted chair, but because of the fabrication techniques at the time, they weren't able to make that chair, the S frame, out of a single piece of metal. It wasn't until 1950, late 40s, early 50s, when metal fabrication caught up or advanced enough to make the chair side that support out of a single piece of stainless steel metal. Interesting. I did not know that. And so, I mean, I looked everywhere. I mean, I found mention of the bolting in several locations, but I never could find a picture of it. So there was only two of them built for the German Pavilion in Barcelona at the time. And there were a couple more of them that were built during that era for the Tugendhat house, which was a famous house that he did for some folks. Yes. Which had several other of the chair designs in that house. There were some built for that house. Between then and the time that Mies came to the United States in 1938, there weren't that many of them manufactured. They weren't built very often. I'm going to say I couldn't find any real reason, but my guess is probably because they were pretty labor-intensive to make. They were also pretty expensive. The original chair was actually pigskin leather, Mm -hmm. which was fairly expensive apparently, and that was an ivory-white color. So not many of those chairs were made in the 15 years following their introduction into the world. Mies came to the United States in the late 30s and fairly soon in the early 40s made friends with Florence Knoll. And in that time, they started producing those chairs. And then in 1953, I believe it was, is when the licensing rights for that chair were about to expire. Mies gave them to to the Knoll factory. 
And since that time, 1953, Noel has produced those chairs continuously since 1953. Nice. Now you can get them in a wide array of leathers. Leathers. And colors and those kinds of things. According to them, they still make them to Mises High Standards. and They actually stamp a signature of Mies on the bottom of the chair so that you can know it's a real chair. Another way to identify it as a real chair is that it has 17 leather straps. The bands are all leather that the seat cushions sit on. There's eight on the back and nine on the bottom. Because, you know, there's tons and tons of reproduction knockoffs, right, they can make. Because yes, the chair, it's no longer a patented chair anymore. That's right. So there has been several lawsuits with the company because there was also a company in New York that was making it at the same time before Noel received the license for it. And that company, I don't remember the name of it, it's a New York company. They still make the chair today, but it can't be called the Barcelona chair. All these knockoffs get around it by calling them some other thing. Of course, the only difference is going to be the quality and the materials and the fabrication process. But the idea that that chair is, again, copied over and over by multiple kinds of things is pretty interesting. But you can get that chair as a knockoff for a couple hundred bucks. But the real chair, this is what I found interesting. I was doing some research. In 2018, I could buy that chair for $4,200 and something dollars. 2019, it was up to $5,000. If you were to buy one today, it was $8,134. Yes. So, yes. COVID or whatever has really impacted the price of that chair. <laughs> I, I was amazed at like the, it like doubled in the last five years. Yeah, it's crazy. And you know, now a lot of those knockoff chairs, they meet all the same specifications. It's just not licensed. Oh, yeah, they do. Probably not the $300 ones. You can find some that are $1,200, $1,500 that are probably really, really close to the exact chair. Yeah. And what you're not going to get is you're not going to get the null and yeah. the signature on the bottom. Yeah. That's what you're not going to get. I went, because when I did my lecture on chairs recently, I went and looked it up. and I, So I knew the $8,200. Yeah. If you buy it, they're going to charge you $500 <laughs> to deliver it. Yeah. I'm like, I just throw it in the back of the car. Yeah. I mean, $500. They're just, yeah. ding it's crazy. The amount of money that they ding you for this stuff. It's funny. I was reading an article that was written in 2017, I think, talking about the chairs. And it was saying that, yeah, you could probably find a used chair for about two or $3,000, like a real chair, <laughs> yeah. an authentic one. And then you can buy one for about 4000 And I was like, mm, man, nope. Not anymore. Nope, nope, nope. So two of my buddies, when we were in college, you know, I have my Eames chair that everybody hates me for because yeah. I didn't have to pay for it. I had two buddies of mine, they went to a garage sale in Austin, Texas, and they bought two original mm. Barcelona pavilion chairs for $50. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a time period there where you could probably get them, you could get that stuff for really cheap because nobody really cared. Yeah. Yeah. An asterisk to all this is, again, if you go and start to look at any of the other chairs, all of the chairs that Mies is accredited with designing are M-somethings. The real names are M90, M70, and whatever, but there's the Barcelona chair, the Bruno chair, which is actually where Villa Tugendhat was actually in Bruno, mm -hmm. Czechoslovakia. So there's the Bruno chair and there's the Tugendhat chair. But again, all of those chairs designed in close um, coordination with Lily Reich of the Bauhaus. And she, she was really close and she came to visit Mies a couple of times, but she just never left Germany. I don't know if she just couldn't do it or what, but so they were a really close pair, which I found was really interesting. And it makes me wonder if it was one of those sort of she did all the work and he just was like, yep, my chair kind of thing. Cause that's how things went back in the day. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's cool. I learned some stuff. I, it's the goal. Learn something you don't know. Yeah. All right. You ready for my second item now? Sure. 
So for my second object to design, I pivoted a bit and decided to look up the history and the story behind the Swiss Army Knife. Oh, nice, nice. I'm interested. That's cool. Yeah, so not to make this age-specific, but I feel like people in my neighborhood of age group grew up either being a Swiss Army Knife person or you didn't. And that decision wasn't accidental. And I had two when I was young. And I'm pretty sure I stole both of them (laughs) from my parents. So my dad had what I believe to be the most traditional knife, which is known as the Huntsman. That time, I secretly coveted ones that my friends had that included the toothpick Mm -hmm. and the tweezer. That's the kind I had, actually. Yeah. And I took one that was my mom's but it was incredibly tiny mm. and you know it barely had yep. anything to it at all and i looked it up and it's called the sd classic and it has a knife and a nail file on one side and a pair of scissors on the other and the coveted toothpick which seems kind of gross to me now to be honest with you she had lost it. the toothpick wasn't there it was gone i never had the toothpick mm. i always wanted it but i never had it yeah so that's what made me think about okay let's go back and do some research on this which is kind of crazy So during the 1880s, the Swiss Army decided to purchase a new folding pocket knife for their soldiers so they could maintain their service rifles, Mm. which the model that they had, they actually used screws in it. So if they needed to fix something, they needed a screwdriver to like get into their guns. Mm -hmm. So what they needed was a screwdriver and a can opener, and the knife was kind of bonus. That was kind of the requirements of it. And at the time, there wasn't a Swiss company with the capacity to fill the initial order, which was 15,000 knives. So a German company by the name of Wester and Company was retained. And this initial order was filled and delivered around the end of 1891. And the initial model was designated Model 1890, supposedly for the year the order was placed, even though it makes more sense to me that it would have been called Model 1891, since that's when they got it. But First knife met these original requirements and included a blade, a reamer, a can opener, and a screwdriver. Pretty straightforward. Mm. And all of those things were on the same side of the knife. It wasn't the Swiss Army knife that you think of now when they had knives or utility functions on both sides of the knife. Mm -hmm. So at this point, Carl Elsner entered the picture. And Carl Elsner was a Swiss inventor and a cutler, and he owned a company that made surgical equipment. So this all kind of makes sense that he might be the guy that steps up. He was now competing directly with the German company, Western company, to make the Model 1890, which he competed with them for about five years. And he was losing so much money because he couldn't make them as cheaply as the Mm. Western company could. And he was on the verge of bankruptcy. So then five years later, it's 1896 now, and he came up with an idea for an improved knife that actually had a different spring action in it that allowed the knife blades or the utility functions to be on both sides, but still utilize the same spring action. So he came up with that, this big breakthrough. And it was a fancier knife, and it was intended for use by officers. And he filed a patent on this new knife, and he called it the Schweizer Offiziers und Sportsmesser. My German's way better than my French, by the way. Which basically means Swiss officer and sports knife. Ironically, the Swiss military did not commission this knife. <laughs> they went another 12 years mm. before they 
1908 when they finally got the commission to do this. So Elsner ended up renaming his company to Victoria Knox because it's actually after his wife's name's Victoria and then this other kind of thing that honestly I didn't go down deep enough rabbit hole to figure out exactly what it meant. But that's where the basis of it was, was in the honor of his mother who had passed away. And there was some competition for what we all know now as the Swiss Army knife, as the Elsner knife got to be really popular. And the Wegner Company showed up. Mm. Now, the Wegner Company was run by a guy named Theodore Wegner. And he actually, in the original company, he bought them and he changed it to be named after him. And that was the competition. And I guess they were, you know, good chaps about it. And they decided that when the Swiss Army Knife contract came up, they would split it. The two of them would split it. And I believe what I have is that Wegner would advertise his knife as the genuine Swiss Army Knife. And Elsner would use the original Swiss Army Knife as part of it. Okay, fast forward. Almost 100 years. It's 2005. Victoria Knox bought Wenger, Wenger, whatever, and once again became the sole manufacturer and supplier of Swiss Army knives. Mm -hmm. And what's funny about this is so all these Swiss Army knives, they're the ones that make them for the Swiss Army, and they make a whopping 50,000 a year that goes to the Swiss Army. (laughs) And then 9,950,000 get sold to guys (laughs) like you and me. (laughs) How many get sold to the rest of us? Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the Swiss Army is not even like a real player and a driver in this. So here's a, so here's a couple of fun facts. The reason it's called a Swiss Army knife and not the Model 1890 or some variation of that was because after World War II, U.S. soldiers had a hard time pronouncing the German word for Offizier Messer, which means officer's knife. They couldn't say that, so they just like you know the Swiss Army knife. They neutered it <laughs> to just that that country's oh my, knife. That country's knife. <laughs> Yeah. How American of us. Yeah, the Swiss Army Knife. So that's where it got the name for it. I went and did some more research, and the Swiss Army Knife isn't actually the first multi-use pocket knife, according to Wikipedia. Mm. Melville mentions one in chapter 107 of Moby Dick, which and that was like in 1851 or something like that. Mm. So 50 years before the Model Knife 1890 knife came out, 40 years later, Herman Melville had already been talking about it. So there have been over 400 different models of Swiss Army knife manufactured. And the biggest one they've ever made was the Swiss Champ XXL, which has 73 functions in it. You know, I think about my dad's, it had like five. It doesn't fit in a human's pocket at all. (laughs) You got to put it in the the bed of your pickup (laughs) truck to carry it around. Yeah. So pretty amazing. And of course, it's still an active site and they're the sole manufacturer of these knives. And the Wegner company, they were able to operate for 10 years after Victoria Knox bought them because they made watches and all this other kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. like I said, they then got completely absorbed and it's now just Victoria Knox that's out there now. And if you go to their website, they still make watches. They still make not just like Swiss Army knives, but like cutlery. I mean, they Mm -hmm. they make a lot of stuff. It's not just Swiss Army stuff. And they make about 45,000 of these knives a day. Goodness gracious. So do you know when it was split, was it split for that 100 years where they were both just making them and going, yeah, everything's good? Yes. Yep. And were they, because I have no idea, is there some way for me to know which brand yes. my knife is if I were to go back and like my childhood knife? Yeah, I'll put a picture on there, but 
one of them actually has, when you think of like the Swiss shield, mm-hmm. so the sides are kind of curved and the bottom is kind of curved. Mm-hmm. That one is the Victorinox, and the Wenger one is more of a rectangular box around the Swiss cross. Mm, okay. That's kind of how you can tell. Okay. Which one, which one is which. But other than the fact that one giant remains, there wasn't a whole lot of discrepancy, and I'm sure the people at different places who know way more about this than the research I've done in the last week on this, there's a lot of similarities between the two knives. So it's not like, oh, this one's junk. Oh, you got a junk one, and this yeah. is actually the one that survived, and so it makes it better. Yeah. No, it's just different kind of models. And yeah. So from about 9008 to 2005, they both operated. They both made knives for the Swiss Army. That's just kind of what it was. It's kind of a right twix, left twix scenario. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, so there right, you that's go. That's interesting, though. Cool, cool, cool. There you go. Swiss Army knife. And you know what? To this day... You're a guy that you carry a knife around in your pocket, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to be that guy, but I just don't like stuff in my pockets, so I n- never was that guy. And I keep getting knives thinking like, oh, this is going to be the one. So I have a kitchen drawer that has about five pocket knives in it. <laughs> yeah. And all of them are better than the Swiss Army knife that I have. Uh, yeah. I have a Swiss Army knife, but it's more of like, oh, I have a can opener and a screwdriver and a Phillips head, and then I got a pair of... Like, it's more like a all-in-one tool. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a knife, that's not what you're going for, in my opinion. There's like other knives out there. They're like, all we do are knives. And this is what you get. It's a blade. That's it. Mm -hmm. But it's an awesome blade. (laughs) Yeah. Not, oh, and the tip can be used as a screwdriver. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't don't carry a Swiss Army knife as a knife. (laughs) No. You know, it's funny is I used to get people ship me little Swiss Army knife knives. You could get your name and company logo on them and all that kind of stuff. So I have a bunch of knockoff little knives that have (laughs) my old company name on them. And it's like, yeah, this is a piece of junk. (laughs) But anyway, I think it's funny how it got co-opted by a lot of different things. Yeah. But as a design object, I would imagine that it probably has crossed or passed through the pockets of Mm -hmm. a huge percentage of people. Oh, yeah. In their life. Yeah. For sure. Okay. All right. Okay, so my last one here is also not really architectural related, but I'm going to get into the story first, and then we'll we'll figure out what it is. So it starts in 1830s in a Danish woodworking shop. All right, setup's promising. <laughs> there is a Danish woodworker named Ole Kirk Christensen, and his parents were farmers. He kind of went through the traditional... Danish schooling system and did some time his military that he needed to and then came back to his around his hometown and bought a woodworking building I should say at that time they were making things like furniture ladders and stools and ironing boards and stuff like that the goal was that it was really high quality but that they were normal everyday use things but they were proud of their quality and the things they did they had a a large family 12 kids and they were living in this area and then one of the Sons takes over, and then in 1929, the Great Depression happens. It kind of does things all over the world, and they start to not be able to do as well. And then around that time, two of the sons accidentally burn down the, the woodworking, the manufacturing plant. They're in there trying to start a fire, and they accidentally set some sawdust on fire and burn the whole place. And they actually did start a fire. <laughs> and they actually burnt the whole place down. That was a big deal. 
So at that time, they start trying to get back into it and the economy and everything like they're still in the depression. It's so bad. And so at the time, there's a Danish program that helps support manufacturing. And so they send out some paperwork and whatever. And in that handbook, there's a thing about making toys out of wood. And so this guy starts to make toys out of wood. And one of the most famous toys that he makes is a, a duck that you pull on a string. And as you pull it on the string, the duck's bill opens and closes, open and closes as it's like rotary on that. Mm -hmm. And then the war comes and happens <laughs> as it does to the world in World War II. And everything gets destroyed one more time <laughs> because of the war. So after the war, the Christensen family, the son, which I think is, is Kirk, starts to look into plastic molding because plastic is a new thing because wood is hard to come by after the war. And plastic injection molding is a brand new technology that has come up. And plastic is easier to get than actual wood. And so they start looking at doing plastic injection molding for these toys. They make some plastic injection molding toys. One of the most famous ones they make is a tractor. If you think about it now, it's just a fully plastic tractor <laughs> that we would get some, you know, really cheap kids toy. But one of the other things that they make are bricks, little bricks that you can clip together that are made out of plastic. And so this is the story of Legos. The origin story. The origin story of Lego. And at the time, interestingly enough, there were some laws in place that happened during the 1940s when, after the war, when they started doing this plastic injection molding, they were experimenting with the stuff, but there was laws and regulations that wouldn't let them make anything to sell until 1949. So for a couple of years, they were playing around with this plastic injection molding. And during that time, while they were doing all that, and this is where the story gets a little fuzzy. They got a hold of some wooden blocks from England that were called Kitty Craft, developed by a guy named Harry Page. And these were little blocks that had little nubs on the top that allowed them to stack together. But you could typically open one side where you could put a little door or something like that. And so they were, they were hollow on the inside and they kind of allowed you to put stuff in them. They were cubes. They had a cube model and then a, I think, rectangular model. But they were made out of, out of wood, I think, at the time. And so there's some fuzziness there as to whether or not <laughs> the Christians stole the idea of the Lego from this guy, Harry Page. Mm. But as it turns out, there are stories that say, well, in reality, they met and that they talked about it and that Harry Page said that it was okay for them to use this kind of idea because he was in England there and Denmark it wasn't a big deal. Although... Harry Page had patented that system in 1940 in England, France, and Switzerland. In 1959 is when the patent for Lego was introduced in Denmark. And so from that time forward, we all know the story. Legos dominated the world as far as being this crazy kid's toy. And in reality, it didn't really dominate. If you know a lot about Legos, it kind of started out slow. and It wasn't a really big deal. In the beginning, they were really, very simple. And it wasn't until another one of the sons took over in the late 50s, Gottfried, that he developed this idea of the Lego system of building things. And the idea was that you could just build and build and build. And the more Legos that you had, the more things you could make. And that then they started to put out instructions with the Legos as to how you could build things. Because before that, there wasn't. There were like toy blocks, but you could snap them together. And so his idea was that it became this big systemized thing and you could build multiple things. And that was really what revolutionized and changed the way that, that Lego, the whole idea about Legos um, became. 
Godfrey took over what, late 50s, something like that? Yeah, 50s. Yes, yes. I think it was 63 when he introduced what they called then the Lego system of play. Yeah. And so it was about this whole stretching stuff out and and making it more than just one of the articles described as. And originally they were kind of this really strong post-war tool where you were just building little houses. You know, (laughs) it's kind of funny to think about it. And so they grew and grew and blah, blah, blah. And interestingly enough, in 1981, Lego formally bought the rights to the Kitty Craft bricks from the descendants of Harry Page. Oh, really? Yeah. So interestingly enough that maybe at some point they decided, oh, well, maybe we should formally do this. And I don't know if it's because stuff came up, could really find a, an impetus for it, but that they acknowledge the fact that some of their origin came from that. Although according to Lego, the agreement was that, well, one of the Christensen guys met with the family, met with him and said, he said it was fine, but there was no really anything to back that up other than word of mouth. And so in 1981, they bought the rights from the family. The sad thing about Paige is he actually committed suicide in like 1957 because life was so hard. And then three years later, Lego was introduced in England, which was kind of like a punch in the face, I'm sure, to the family members. Yeah, I bet. But he also moved off of Legos. That was another reason why he started doing other things and because they didn't take off in England. And so he just dropped them, which is maybe the reason why it never came up until later. And so the other interesting thing about it is their method hasn't changed since the 50s. So if you have a 50-year-old Lego, it'll still work with the Legos you have today. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, like they all still clip together. There were some major things along the way in Legos, like they developed the wheel part and They've gone through some interesting iterations, worked with MIT for a while to develop these weird electronic versions of Legos and stuff. And anyway, it's funny to think the Legos that I grew up with were almost traditional where they didn't really have all of the branded stuff like they do now. The coolest thing that that I had was that in the late 70s, they introduced space Legos, (laughs) castle Legos, and Lego cities. Those are the newest ranges where they actually gave you themes. Right. Up until that, it was just a a box of bricks. Yeah. And there wasn't much to it. Another little factoid about it. I want to say it was 2003 or 2004. They had a really terrible year and they dropped 30% in sales thing. And they had to restructure and refocus the company and all this kind of stuff. And had somebody come in. Their CEO is no longer in the family, but they still have families on the board of directors and stuff like that. It's still the same family that operates or is involved with it, but they have different CEOs now. You know what I do find it's funny because I know a little bit about this. Yeah, even though I'm not the yeah. the Lego savant that you clearly are. But so the Christensen family, the original Christensen family, mm-hmm. like Christensen, K R I S, Christensen. I found debates on that, but yeah, yeah. So I have all these, all the different names. Oh yeah, yeah. At least where I looked at, they're all spelt Christensen with, with a K. K. Yeah, yeah. But of course, Niels B. Christensen. I think in 2015, 17 took over and he's Christensen with a C-H. Yeah. And I'm like, that seems <laughs> like, what's going on here? <laughs> we went from one Christensen to another Christensen. Yeah. But the Christensen was, there's always been some family member that's been involved. But Yeah, which is interesting, I think. But yeah. Do you know, I, I heard some fact a long time ago. Well, I don't know, within the last 10 years. And I, I want to look it up. At one point, and it may still be true. Lego is the world's largest tire manufacturer in the world. They are. Are they still that? Yes. They, 
They use more rubber. To they make, make more tires for their things than anybody else in the world. Yes. Yeah, but it's not just number of tires. It's they use more rubber to make tires. Oh, that part I don't know. Yeah, but that's that was the part that I heard because yeah, of course, one little thumb sized tire is a lot easier to make than one giant F one fifty size tire. Yeah. But it was the amount of rubber that they use to make tires is larger than any other tire manufacturer in the world. That's possible. Yeah. That's really possible. Because there are apparently 20 billion Lego pieces made every year. Golly. That's unbelievable. There are there are 62 Lego pieces for every person on the planet. <laughs> wow. Well, somebody's carrying my 62 because I currently don't. I currently well, don't have I've any. I've got your 62. I've got plenty around the house. But... <laughs> Some other interesting facts. At one point in time, this is interesting, this is probably terrible, but a ship of Legos capsized in the ocean. There was like 4.8 million pieces of Legos that dumped in the ocean. Oh my gosh. And so they're still washing up on beaches and somewhere. The 4 by 2 brick, if you take six of those, you can combine them in 915 million different ways. It's a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I read is that they've been getting criticized in the past few years because of the non-environmentally friendly aspect of like all the plastic and stuff that they make. They're starting to try to do different things so that now anything that's not a brick, tree stuff, and the little all the accoutrement pieces that come with Lego, not the bricks themselves, but all the other stuff that comes in a package, are no longer made with petroleum-based plastic. They're made with some other kind of cane sugar-based plastic or something that's a little bit different. Seems yeah. a little weird to me, but I guess they've got to figure it figured out. <laughs> I don't have any ants on all my daughter's Legos. <laughs> I guess it's fine, but so it's interesting stuff. There's because we talk about it so much in the show, and it's been an influence for a lot of architects. It seems I thought I'd go in and, and learn a little bit about Lego. But apparently, during the history in the beginning, there were like three or four times that the factories got destroyed. And actually, the last one was after the war. Yeah, like in the sixties. And. And they stopped production of wood toys or That's something, That's when they right? quit making wood toys. They were like, forget it. These wood toys keep burning our stuff. <laughs> so we're like, we're not going to do it anymore. And so they quit uh, making wood toys. But up until then, they were making plastic and wood toys like at the same time. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. All right. Yeah. Cool. Lego's certainly got a story. I'm sure you dedicate a whole hour to the really if you wanted to break down the history. But, but we've been at it a while. Yeah, yeah. So it's time for us to wrap the show up with. It's good we only did two. <laughs> Yeah, all right. So we're going to do a would you rather question today. Yeah. And, you know, I'd mentioned a couple of episodes ago that my neighbor across the street got a book on 3001 would you rather questions. Uh -huh. I spent part of my Saturday while I was on the couch flipping through the book and I wrote down about 20 of them. Oh, all right. That's good. I've only gone through like 400 of mm. them. So I still have 2,500 more to go through. And there's a lot of them there that are a lot different. This is one of those ones. And it's a bit of a throwback to other sorts of questions we used to answer because there's some silliness to this. All right. right. So here it is. Would you rather be abducted by aliens or bitten by a vampire? No, this one's easy for me. We got to note there's going to be some rules coming up. And I can't list them all. But so Andrew just he heard this question right before we started recording today's show. And I only picked it about 10 minutes before we recorded the show. So I don't have an answer in the cans. This is all going to be off top of the head. But at first, we're like, well, what if the aliens are vampires? <laughs> I mean, so yeah. clearly there's got to be some ground rules. So we'll just, we're going to go by fair play rules. So if you do something wacky, I'm going to call you out on it. You can That's call fine. me out on it. All right. For me, I'd rather get bit by a vampire. I'm on board for that. 
You're like, that sounds I'm like- always been on board for that. I'm like, that sounds good. Now, I don't want to get bit today. I want to get bit about, I don't know, 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was about to say, you don't want to <laughs> like, get older. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I want to, if I bit, I want to be a while back. But yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. I think that would be great. I'd take it. Yeah. But what if it's right now? Right yeah. now? You're, you're still going? I'd still take it. Yeah. 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 What's the logic behind that? I got the answer, but why? It's much cooler. First off, there's no benefit for me getting abducted by an alien. Zero. I mean, no, that's not true. Uh, All right. I'll explain why. How about this? In my mind, I'm sure, yeah, you're going to give something different, something and I'm going to have to call you on it. But (laughs) if we just take the idea of most alien abductions and the way that they work and what comes out of that, there's nothing productive for me. Because in your mind, it's nothing but probing. Yes. That's what alien yeah, abductions yeah. are are 100% about the probe. Sucked out of my car, and I'm like <laughs> poked and prodded and all this kind of stuff, and then they just spit me back out on the roof of my house later. Yeah. And so that doesn't really do anything for me. But the idea of being able to be a vampire and live forever, I mean, there are some downsides, of course, but I could live forever. I could be super fast. I'm not twinkly one. I'm not that kind of stupid vampire. Right? Yeah. I don't glisten in the sun. I got to hide in the dark, which I'm fine with that. I like the nighttime anyway. That is true. My proclivity is there already. Yes. So to me, it's like, yeah, I can manage it. That sounds like a plan. I- I'd do it. I mean, I'm looking at you right now and you're all in black, black background, pasty skin. I, I, I know. don't know that you're not a vampire now. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yeah. Okay. That's my rationale. It's the only one I see a positive benefit, even though you might say being a vampire is not positive, but Mm. being probed by an alien is not positive to me at all. Okay, first off, nobody says that you're going to get probed, (laughs) but here's what we assumptions we can make, but we can't bank on them, right? Okay. My answer is vampire too, mostly because I don't want to leave this celestial body. I'm not thinking I just get sucked up into high orbit, get probed and drop back on the roof of my house. I'm thinking- I'm abducted, which means oh, they take you're me gone. and okay. I'm gone yeah. and I'm fine. There's only about five people on this planet that I'd be devastated never to see again. I should say if that regard now it changes my, I might want to go do that if they're taking me off to somewhere else, but it just yes. depends. But you, but you don't know, like, are you just going to, there's too many unknowns. Yeah. Are you going to end up in like the version of a zoo or something? Know, yeah. But maybe they're like, we're going to give you everything you possibly want in your zoo. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be like, uh companionship would be kind of important. I don't want to be the only human. Yeah. And what if they, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I, I go, what kind of companionship am I going to get? <laughs> Can I get to pick my companion? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know that you get to choose from what they choose, right? Because you don't want to all of a sudden your significant other goes, wait, what's happening? You're like, well, I'm getting abducted and I'm making you go with me. And they're like, wait a minute. I don't want to go. Yeah. So the vampire one is more appealing simply because I don't have to leave the planet. There's less unknowns. Mm-hmm. And especially with all the vampire programming that's out there right now, they've got all kinds of, I don't have to go bite people on the neck to get my blood anymore. No, I go to the blood bank. They've solved that problem. Yeah, the vampires yeah. have solved that problem. Exactly. They're not all like just murderers. Yep. Well, I know. And I, I can't remember, I think it was called like Sorcery of Witches. There's some TV show. I started the book and I was like, Okay, this is a romance novel for vampires. So I didn't really stick with it. But <laughs> but in this the premise of this book, vampires, witches, and another species of supernatural creatures, they're all occupying the planet together. They all are aware of each other and they're all like, we gotta hide ourselves. But all the other supernatural creatures are all jealous of the vampires 
because they're not as weird as the other ones. They don't have to hide. These people actually can get out in the sun. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, that's a fake. If you're a vampire, you got to play by traditional vampire rules. Yeah, yeah. You don't get to go out in the sun. Yes. But they're all rich because they- Because they live for so long. They can, you can yes. accumulate wealth. Yeah. Yeah. They have generational wealth. Yes. And they're all, I guess they don't have any deterioration of their memory because they all remember the most amazing stats. Like, oh, it was a Tuesday night in 1412 when I met Sir John Blippity Blap. Yeah. I'm like, I can't remember what I did last Tuesday. <laughs> and they're remembering what's happening 500 years That's ago. That's a bonus, man. It's a bonus. It's got to be a perk of being a vampire. Yeah. So while there's some appeal to seeing something so wildly different than what I understand, if I'm able to go travel through space to some point far beyond, assuming that I'm not going into a human zoo or probing, <laughs> you know, I get to live a quality life, but just not here. Yes, there's some appeal to that. That could be kind of interesting because I'd like to see stuff that I, maybe I can't understand it. Maybe it's depressing because I don't understand anything. Mm -hmm. Like they're so advanced. If they're able to go to other planets and just pluck people off for sport. Yeah. That maybe they're so far beyond that. I'm like a, a single cell amoeba compared to them. Maybe that's a bit of a drag. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So yes, I think I'd rather be bitten by a vampire. I'm hoping, we didn't say you survive. We didn't say you become a vampire. You're just bitten by one. <laughs> maybe we need to reword that a little it bit. Maybe so. I'm assuming I survive. I'm assuming bitten by one means I get converted into one. Well, not that I just bleed no. out on the floor. <laughs> yeah, but if you went the probing route on the alien, maybe it's the bad version of the vampire no. too. But to me, there's no good version of the alien abduction. I guess that's the thing in my mind. But could be true that it's not the same. But I choose vampire and- Maybe they pick up the version that you are now, the aliens, and they like make you better. Mm. And then they, then you come back in 50 years, but you're like even more healthy and more invigorated. Maybe so. I don't know. It's a possibility. But I think it's also like you mentioned, but pop culture plays such a role in this decision because in recent years, all these vampire shows portray it as the stuff that we're talking about and then portrays alien abductions in the exact same way that I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. So that they're all terrible and bad. I'm reminded of those Saturday Night Live skits where those they have the oh I know Kate McKinnon is always one and it's like ridiculous so it's so funny yes yeah when you said drop me on my roof <laughs> my mind went to he's thinking about Saturday Night Live right now yeah okay well there we go so we both sided on getting bitten by a vampire because in the end we think that our life actually could get better when compared to snatch and grab situation maybe in the alien camp. Yeah, and I don't know if those better is the right word, but definitely more interesting. Definitely more interesting. See, but I don't know if I agree that it's interesting. Oh, I think so. Because you don't know. You don't know. Well, I... You have an idea of what you think it would be like if you got bitten by a vampire. I guess that's true. Your brain can't really wrap around things that you can't even comprehend of what it might be if you got abducted by aliens. You're just like, probing sounds bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your discourse didn't go much beyond probing. No, but even everything that you were talking about, if they're that advanced and they take me somewhere, if I'm a single-celled amoeba to what their life is, that's not going to be good for me either. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where there's a plus side to that, that I don't feel dumb, I don't feel alone, I don't feel isolated, I don't feel like I'm in some kind of zoo. I don't know what the movie is, but I saw a movie once where somebody was taken and they created like her idyllic life like in her case her spouse had died or her son had died mm. or something like that and they had brought back and they had created an environment for her so she's not looking at there's no other 
like there's not aliens roaming around. Yeah. As far as she knows, they've created this environment for her that's perfect for her because they're loving and caring and they're like, you have pain. We can solve this sort of pain. Now she struggles because in her mind, she knows that it's not real, but her experience, her daily, this is what I do. I wake up, I make coffee, I play with my kid, we go to the park. All of that feels real. But she knows that there's a sentience behind it mm-hmm. that is fabricating this world for her benefit. Yeah. And so she has moments where she struggles. Yeah. And nothing ever changes. Like her kid doesn't grow. Yeah. So she's like, it's year eight and I still have a five-year-old yeah. kind of thing. All right. Well, let's call that a wrap. And thank you for being with us today for episode 144, Objects of Design. Be sure to check out our friends, Construction Specialties. They are so focused on the importance of helping architects achieve their creative vision that they have created a CEU Academy with multiple courses concerning all aspects of design. These courses are each worth one AIA Learning Unit or one IDCEC CEU HSW credit. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and many other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Love the show so much you never want to miss an episode? Well, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. We're available on all the major platforms and wherever you can find your podcast. Get notified every two weeks when we publish a magnificent new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments to leave us a five-star, I'm going to stay on planet Earth rating. To get all of the visuals and additional content for this in-depth episode, head on over to lifeofanarchitect.com. Check out all the other episodes and extra info and all the website has to offer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>